We have a very full room, so please move in your rows if there's space to make room for others. And I would just note there's chairs up in the balcony, and there's some here below. But if you can make more space for people, that would be wonderful. Good morning and welcome to Convocation. We're delighted to have you all in here. Our guest speaker, Reina Grande, gave a talk last night for the Yoder Public Affairs Lecture that was focused on immigration. This morning at nine, she was in this room with the ICC class. And for that reason, it felt like the best transition to have Convocation in this space today. My name is Beverly Lapp, and I uh, organize the Convocation program and the, and the core right now. And so uh, we're very pleased that in partnership with Yoder Public Affairs, we could bring the author of a book that the first year class is reading. This is the book, The Distance Between Us. It's a border crossing memoir um, that tells the story of childhood in Iguala, Mexico, um, leading to crossing the border and ongoing childhood in the Los Angeles area. Reina Grande um, is an award-winning author. Her book, this book, um, and she's written many others as well, was described by the Los Angeles Times as the Angela's ashes of the modern Mexican immigrant experience. Sonia Pizarro, who wrote Enrique's Journey, which I think some of you have read and is a good friend of, of Reina Grande, writes, Grande sheds light on the often overlooked consequence of immigration, the disintegration of a family. Another publication, La Bloga, says anyone who reads The Distance Between Us will find that the distance between their insularity and the humanity of immigrants is in the two inches occupied in the memoirs, 322 pages. For the ICC class, which explores themes of identity, culture, and community, it was important that we find a story to help us do this and to help us reflect on our own stories. We were so pleased to find this book and um, while Raina focused on the book in her first session today and on immigration last night, today's convocation will focus a little more on the educational part of her journey. And I think we also have an opportunity to reflect on education in our own identities, in the shaping of our gifts and how we think of ourselves and our future. I want to note that Reina is from Iguala, Mexico, which is where um, the unfolding story of the 43 missing college students is taking place. And sometime today, I encourage you to visit CIIE over in the Union, where the uh, History of Mexico class taught by Marcia Good this semester um, has prepared a display of these missing students, along with um, recognition of other parts of the world where students who were activists as these students in Mexico were um, faced some real consequences and Ms. Grande may share a little bit about that situation today as well. She will speak for about 20 minutes or so and then open up to questions. So uh, Dr. Pat Lehman on this side and I over here will have a microphone and we invite you to raise your hands um, and ask, ask questions that you would like to to have in conversation with Ms. Grande. And now, please join me in welcoming Reina Grande. Good morning. 
It's great to be here with you today. Uh, thank you for, for um, sharing your, your morning here with me. My water down. So uh, first of all, when I, uh, before I begin, I just want to congratulate all of you guys for your accomplishments. And I want to wish you all the best on your college experience. Um, getting an education is the best thing that you can do for yourself. It's an investment on your future. For me, as the first person in my family to have graduated from college, I can tell you that education has made a huge impact on my life, but also on the lives of the rest of my family. I believe that it takes one person to change a family's path. And I have been that one person to change the path that my family was on. I come from a family who has limited, an, a limited education experience. Um, my father, he was only allowed to go to the third grade before my grandfather pulled him out of school and put him to work in the fields. My mother was only allowed to finish sixth grade before she was taken out of school by her parents and put to work so that she could help their family, her family. And my grandparents, they didn't even have a chance to go to school. So they were put to work since they were very little and they didn't have a lot of opportunities to go to, to, go to school and educate themselves. So my family in Mexico, you know, we were very poor. We still are, many of my family living in Iwala is still very, very poor. And when I was born, I was born in a shack that was made out of bamboo sticks and cardboard with a dirt floor, no running water, no electricity. So even at my birth, you know, I, I was born into, into a family that didn't have a lot going for itself. And I knew since a very young age that because I was poor, I couldn't really aspire to much because in my situation in Mexico, in my hometown, when you are poor, education is a luxury. Even having a basic education can be a luxury. So when I lived in Mexico, I knew that education wasn't really part of my future. And I knew that as soon as I was old enough, just like my parents had been taken out of school, I would have to leave school too, so that I could help my family put food on the table. So as a little girl in Mexico, I didn't really have big dreams for my future. You know, when you are poor, you don't, you don't really dream too much about the future or what you want your future to be like. So I didn't really dream about ever going to college or having a career. Um, that wasn't really part of my reality. But you know, that situation changed for me when my father decided to immigrate to the United States. And he came here first. My father was the first in my family to leave and I was two years old when my father left to come here to the US to look for work and search for a better life for my family. Um, he was here for two years and then he sent for my mother. So when I was four and a half, my mother also left Mexico and headed north and she came here to work alongside my father. So my siblings and I were left behind in Mexico with the promise that one day soon we would be together again. And it took uh, many, many years for that promise to be fulfilled. I was nine and a half years old when my father returned to Mexico 
And when he gathered up uh, me and my brother and sister, and he took us to the border um, where he hired a smuggler who helped us to get into the country. And at the time, my father was still undocumented. So the only way we could really be together was by, by my siblings and I crossing the border illegally without the right documents. So when I came to the U.S. at nine and a half, you know, I came here as an undocumented immigrant. And despite my legal status or my lack of legal status, when I came here to this country, all of a sudden I found myself, you know, thinking about the future in a much different way than I had ever thought about in Mexico. Here in this country, I knew that there was a possibility of hope. You know, this is a country where you could be born into poverty, but with hard work and dedication, you can make something of yourself. You can aspire to much more. So here I began to dream, to dream big dreams, and I was fortunate enough to be able to make them into a reality. So it was here in this country where I dreamed about going to college, and I became the first person in my family to graduate from college and I got a BA and then I got an MFA and currently I'm applying for a PhD program so hopefully next year I'll start a PhD and um, in a few years maybe I'll be you know I'll, I'll be Dr. Grande so that's something that I'm really excited about to be able to get a PhD um, he was also here in this country when I dreamed of having my own home one day and um, when I was 26 years old, I bought my first house. Um, it was here in this country where, you know, I also dreamed of having legal status and having, um, you know, permission to be here in the country to be legitimate. So I became a legal resident and in 2001, I became a U.S. citizen. So that was a dream come true for me. And then one of the biggest dreams that I had um, was to be a, a writer, to be a professional writer. And in 2006, that dream came true for me when my first novel was published. And since then, I've written three books and I've gotten a few awards. And it's just been a really wonderful experience for me to have been able to accomplish those dreams. So even though my family endured many struggles, you know, we made a lot of sacrifices to be here in, in this country and our immigrant experience definitely left us with a lot of traumas and scars. Um, and we did pay a huge price in our pursuit of the American dream. But I am really grateful for the opportunity of coming to the US and escaping the poverty and the life of limitations that I had back home. In Mexico, you know, things have never been very stable. Even since Mexico became a country, um, it has been plagued with corruption and government that, you know, politicians who don't really care about the people. Um, so that has been the curse that Mexico has had since its very beginnings. And Mexico has changed um, ever since I left 30 years ago. And the change has not been for the better. You know, the changes in Mexico have actually been for the worse. When I left Mexico, the country was dealing with um, uh, uh, 
the economy, you know, that was really in a really bad place. Uh, then there was a national debt crisis and the peso was devalued several times and the middle class was almost wiped out because of all the financial troubles that the country was experiencing. But those, that was a kind of situation that I escaped when I left Mexico. But now, you know, Mexico is much worse than that. Um, the, the economy is still not as great. We hear that the economy has gotten better in Mexico, but that only affects people in the big cities like Mexico City and Guadalajara. But, you know, it, it never affects the poor towns, the poor states. And my family living in Guerrero, Mexico, you know, they haven't seen any prosperity whatsoever. Their lives has not changed at all, and they're still living in extreme poverty, and most of them still live in shacks made of sticks and cardboard, like the shack in which I lived. So um, not much has changed in terms of the economy for, for the people there. And now things are even worse because Mexico has been ravaged by rampant violence and crime. So, you know, this has happened time and time again in Mexico all through its history when people have tried to stand up for their rights. They have tried to, you know, make changes in the country and sometimes they end up paying with their own lives. So, as you guys have heard, you know, my hometown of Iguala Guerrero has been in the news lately. And believe me, this wasn't the way I hoped for my hometown to make it into the pages of the New York Times or, or the LA Times. When that day came, I thought that it would be because something good was happening in Mexico and in my hometown when the New York Times finally wrote a story about it. But no, um, the stories have been you know, really difficult to, to read about. And especially because of everything that's happening right now in, in my hometown has just been really unfortunate and I worry for the people you know, living there and especially my family that I have living there who are dealing with the situation. So Iguala, my hometown, has become one of the, has become the epicenter of one of the worst events in Mexico's recent history. So just to tell you a little bit about it for those of you, I'm sure most of you know about what's going on, but on September 26, um, some university students from, from the local rural university came to my hometown to ask for donations. They were heading to Mexico City where there was a protest that they were gonna participate in. And um, so they were you know, borrowing buses and asking for donations for their trip. And uh, the um, students were attacked by local police. And three of them ended up dead on the scene and three innocent bystanders also died. And 43 of the students were loaded up into police cars and taken away. And they have been missing ever since. And people don't know what happened to them. Um, they are feared dead. Although, you know, nobody wants to talk about that possibility because we still wanna hold on to that hope that they might still be alive. Um, so the authorities believe that the local police turned the students over to a drug gang. And the mayor of Iwala and his wife have been implicated in the case. And they are believed to have been the ones to order police to teach the students a lesson. So the students, you know, they, they, um, 
they came to to protest as most students do. You know, we wanna always stand up for 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 our rights. Uh, we see injustices being done, and as students, we wanna speak out and and try to make a change in the world. So this is what they were trying to do, and this is why they were there in my hometown. And uh, people have been arrested. Up to 50 people have been arrested, and you know, up to now, 12 graves have been found around my hometown. Um, 38 bodies have been um, have been dug out of those graves, and they're still trying to identify the remains and find out, you know, uh, who these these bodies belong to. And so far, we haven't really had a lot of, of uh, progress in terms of of finding out, you know what happened to the students or why these things happened. But with the arrest of the mayor and his wife yesterday morning, hopefully um, more details will come to light and we will finally know, you know what it is that, that happened there. And what makes me really sad about this situation is that you know these students, they come from the poorest of families. Um, these are the children of peasants. And it's really heartbreaking because, you know, as I mentioned earlier, like, it, you know, having an education in, in Mexico is a luxury and not everybody gets to even graduate from elementary school, let alone graduate from middle school or from high school and be able to make it to university. And these students, even though they came from the poorest of families, you know, they had managed to get themselves all through school and get themselves to a university where they were studying to be teachers and they were hoping to make a difference in their communities and in their countries and you know these young people are the future of Mexico and they dreamed of making Mexico a better place to live and now they are gone and you know in their absence though they have done something really really incredible they have inspired the Mexican people to stand up and to say enough is enough. And I'm wondering about the disappearance and I'm wondering if you know it's gonna spark a revolution and I think that it will and I think that in many ways you know, they already have, they're making changes already with people standing up and finally saying that they've had enough and they're willing to fight to make some good changes in Mexico. So these events in my hometown and everything that has unfolded over the past five weeks has really made me think a lot about life in Mexico and the reasons why my father decided to immigrate. So as a student here in the US, you know, I faced many challenges when I came here. I didn't speak a word of English, so I had to learn the language. Um, I didn't really know about the American way of life, so I had to learn how to adapt and how to assimilate and how to live in this new country and this new culture. And being here in this country as an undocumented immigrant, that also created a whole lot of struggles because when you're undocumented, you are forced to live in the shadows and you're forced to live in fear, you know, in fear of being deported or fear of never being able to really do much with your future because you don't have a social security number so to me, you know, what really kept me going through all those hardships when I came here was that I never forgot where I came from. And I knew that I had been given the opportunity of a lifetime to come to the country here where injustices and corruption are not as easily tolerated. 
So to me, you know, the, the U.S. is a country where people can speak up without fearing for their lives. This is a country where we value our young people, you know, where you can pursue your dreams, pursue your education, and be allowed to reach your full potential if you're willing to work hard for it. So the journey to your dreams is not easy, but there is the possibility of hope. And this is what makes this country so beautiful, that there is the possibility of hope for something better. And if you dream it, then you can achieve it. And it, oh, life isn't like that in other countries. You know, as we have seen in Mexico, things, are, they're not that easy. And if you look at what's going on in the rest of the world, you know, you can see that education is not easy to come by in other places. And students have it really hard. Um, you know, like we, I was looking at what's been going on in Nigeria. I don't know if you guys remember back in April, um, there were 200 girls in a school that were kidnapped from their school by Islamic militants. And it's been seven months already. They haven't been found. And Nigeria's own government hasn't, you know, really done a, a good job of looking for the girls and, and trying to find the girls. And recently, the military leader um, of the group that kidnapped the girls just said that there's no point in looking for them because the girls have already been married off to, to his men. And um, to me, you know, when I think about that, it's just, it's, it's really devastating to see what students in other countries have been dealing with just because, you know, they, they want to have an education. And, you know, a few years ago, there was also another story that, that really touched my heart. It was a story of a 13-year-old girl in Pakistan who had been shot in the head by the Taliban because she was fighting for girls' rights to an education. And, you know, the Taliban came and shot her to, to silence her and to keep her from fighting for her right to an education. And it just makes me think about how important education is and how time and time again, it has been used as a way to keep people down. Um, so I was inspired by this girl's bravery and by her standing up for her right to have an education, even if it meant putting her life on the line. And luckily she survived. And this year, you know, Malala Yousafzai, she was given the Nobel Prize, uh, the Nobel Peace Prize. And at 17, she just became the youngest person to have ever received this prize. And she still continues her fight for a girl's right to an education. So all these things that are happening around the, the world with students and education, it just may, makes me really think about, you know, the, the importance of education in a person's life and how education can really change our lives. You know, it's so important that some people are even willing to risk their lives to obtain it. So for me, you know, getting an education, it completely changed who I am. I have gone from being a girl born in a shack made of sticks and cardboard to a college graduate. And I have gone from being an undocumented immigrant to an author published by one of the biggest publishers in the US. So this is what education can do. So just to, to conclude and before I open it up for questions, I just wanna say that I'm really proud of all of you for what you're doing, for getting an education, for fighting hard for what you believe. 
And I know that you are going to do a lot of great things. So I congratulate you on everything that you have already done and all the wonderful things that you are going to go on to do. Well, thank you. I know there was a student who was holding on to the microphone already. Where did the student go? Oh, he gave it back? So if you guys have a question, feel free to ask me anything. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to answer any questions that you have. Since coming back to the U.S., um, or no, since being in the U.S. when you first came, uh, have you tried talking to your evil grandmother? And if so, how did you approach her at, you know, considering everything she put you through? Yeah. Um, for those of you who, who don't know who my evil grandmother was, uh, she was the, the grandmother I was left with when my parents came here to work. And my siblings and I were left under my evil grandmother's care. And the reason why I call her evil, my evil grandmother, is because she was a really mean grandmother, but also because her name was Evila, which is spelled like the word evil with an A. <laughs> and I remember when I was learning English, I ran into the word evil in a story. And I said, that looks like my grandmother's name. And I looked up the definition of the word evil in the dictionary, and I said, that is my grandmother's name. <laughs> so anyway, she was like, like Cruella DeVille. But um, so living with this grandmother while my parents were gone was really, really difficult. Because my grandma, she, she mistreated us. She didn't want us in her house. And, and the money that my parents would send to her so that she could feed us and, and clothe us and buy us shoes, she would just spend it on other things. So my siblings and I, we didn't really benefit from the fact that we had two parents in the U.S. making dollars. And um, so I, you know, when I came to the U.S., I was very hurt and I was angry at this grandmother and I just couldn't believe, you know, that she had treated us in such a mean um, way. And she has shown no compassion, you know, and we were in a very difficult situation not having our parents with us and we really needed compassion and we needed some love and she was not willing to give it to us. So I, I did have a lot of resentment towards her. And when I was a, a, a student at UC Santa Cruz, I, um, I applied for a grant so that I could go to my hometown and I was writing a collection of short stories that took place in my hometown. So that's how I applied for this grant. And I went and, you know, I was determined to have a face-to-face -face talk with this grandmother and ask her why she was so mean. And I got to her house and then it turns out that my grandmother was very sick. She had uh, osteoporosis. So she had shriveled up into this tiny, tiny, tiny you know, person in a chair and she couldn't even get up anymore. So my aunt had to carry her from room to room and, and change her diapers and all of that. So she was this shriveled old lady 
And she also wasn't lucid anymore. She just wasn't there anymore. She had digressed to her childhood. And she thought that the people around her were, you know, people from her childhood. So when I walked into her house, she didn't know who I was. She thought I was her sister. And then she started talking to me, you know, about like if she was a, a child. And then she said, um, let's get on the donkey because we have to take our dad's lunch to him, you know, in the fields. And, and I, then I feel really, really sad for my grandmother to see her in that situation. And obviously I wasn't going to have that talk that I wanted to have with her. And then my grandmother started doing something very strange. You know, she, she started going like this and like that. And I said, Grandma, what are you doing? And she said, the maggots, the maggots are eating me. And that really like freaked me out, you know, that my grandma thought she had maggots crawling on her, eating her. But I, then I talked to my aunt and I told her, you know, about the maggots. And my aunt said that what happened was that when my grandmother was six years old, she had measles. And the sores had, had gotten so infected that there were maggots in them. But her family was so poor, they couldn't take her to the doctor. So then my grandma, six years old, had to pull out maggots from the open source. And when my aunt told me that story, I just completely forgave my grandmother for her cruelty and her bitterness and for the way she had been with me and my siblings because I just couldn't understand how a little girl, a six-year-old girl, and I have a six-year-old daughter, I just could not understand, you know, the kind of life that she had lived and the kind of poverty that she had lived in that her family couldn't afford medical care for her and she had to pull maggots out of her, her source. It, it was just so devastating to me when I heard that story that at that moment I just completely forgave my grandmother because I understood finally why she had been the way she was. And sometimes, you know, when you live a hard life of, of hardships, it, it, really, it can really make you a very angry, bitter person and you want to hurt other people because of the way you've been hurt. So I understood my grandma. So now I, I, I you know, I, I, I love her and I feel bad that she had to have such a bad, bad um, childhood. Yeah. Another question? Uh, Reina, thank you so much for, for your honesty and uh, stories of migration are so hard to tell with such honesty. So thank you so much. Um, we have millions of people in this country who have gone through these kind of stories and carry that trauma and they're all over our society right now and we carry those stories of so much pain. Have you found any helpful ways of dealing with the trauma or your, your family? And how do you deal with it in, in healthy ways? Mm -hmm. um, well, for me, one of the reasons why I write was to deal with the trauma. You know, I have been writing since I was 13 years old. And I started writing as a way to try to understand, you know, the things that had happened to me and my family. 
And so by writing about them, it just, it helped me to understand them, but it also helped me to unload all of my emotions that I, that I was carrying inside of me. So I always let, you know, all of the pain out and the hurt out and, and the anger and the resentment, all of those emotions, all the good and all the ugly, I put them into my writing so that I could unload and I didn't have to carry them inside of me anymore. So for me, writing has always been, you know, very therapeutic. Every time, you know, I, I'm feeling sad or, or I'm feeling scared or, or, you know, things are bothering me, I just sit down and I start writing and just let it all out without holding anything back. And, um, and that has, you know, has been such a, such a blessing in my life because it has helped me to heal and it has helped me to, to be a, a better person and to understand, you know, and to forgive. So that, that's my way of dealing with that trauma. Um, yeah, I mean, everybody reacts to trauma in a different way. And, you know, we all need a form of self-expression. We all need a way to, to vent and to let things out. And when we hold it all inside and we don't have that way of, of expressing ourselves, if we don't have an outlet for self-expression, you know, it just festers inside of us and we can end up either imploding or exploding. And when you implode, you know, you become, um, you, you become self-destructive, you know, and you hurt yourself. And that's why we have people who, you know, have um, drug problems or, or alcohol problems because they didn't have a way to, 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 to self-express and, and that's, so they turn to drugs and alcohol as a way to do that. So they end up becoming self-destructive. And then when you explode, that means you take all of those things and you put them out there and you try to hurt not yourself but others as well. And that's why you know, we've been seeing a lot in the news with all these, you know, these young, young men especially who go into you know um, public places like schools or movie theaters and they end up shooting people and killing people? That's their way of also self, you know, of, that's their self-expression. That's them trying to get all of these things that they carried inside themselves out, but in a very, very bad, destructive way. So that's why you know when when you when you are you know dealing with some difficult situations, you do need a way to express yourself and you you do need that outlet you know to let it all out so that's why like for me you know writing has been that for me and and um, i encourage other people to to also write you know you write for yourself write everything that's inside of you and put it down on paper or you could find other ways to express yourself you know you could turn to sports or you can turn to art and music and um and do other things to to to, to express what you're feeling inside. But just don't let it, you know, bubble up inside of you. Don't, don't leave it there. Try to find a way to, to let it out, but in a, in a positive way, in a way that is healthy. The other question. I have a question. Um, living in Iguala, when you lived there, um, obviously, you grew up in poverty. Um, what can the campesinos or the people that live there do in the injustice that has been going on? I mean, what 
what power can they have when they're campesinos and the government is doing what they're doing to them? Mm -hmm. How can they speak up? How can they enact so that this injustice is stopped? Right. Yeah, and I think, you know, we're starting to see that right now with what's going on with the missing students is that, you know, over the years, um, people have, it's not so much that they have allowed things to, to carry on the way they've been carrying on for years and years, but, you know, when you are, when you are living in that kind of poverty that is forced on you, and when you live in a place where you know your own government doesn't doesn't um, look out for you and they don't provide opportunity so that you can become um, you know better and and have a, a better life for yourself, you're constantly being put down, and that can really affect um, your psyche and how you see yourself, and you can start to to become that victim, you know, and, and to allow yourself to be a victim and to be put down because it affects your self-esteem and the way you see yourself. And I think what's been happening right now, you know, with the, with the missing students and the fact that it was our own police that turned on them, um, it, has, it has waken up the country. You know, it has forced everybody there to really look at themselves in the mirror and to say, you know, is this, who I want to be? Is this the kind of country that I want to live in? And and um, and the positive thing is that people have finally found that inner strength. You know, they have found that strength inside of themselves to say that that enough is enough, and that the only way the country is going to change is not by waiting for somebody to come and rescue them. You know, they have to save themselves. And, and this is what has happened, you know, with all the, the poor people in, in the community, you know, in the country where they have finally found that inner strength to finally say, you know, that they've had enough of that kind of life and that kind of treatment from their own government. And they're standing up together, you know, as, as a people um, standing up for their rights. And they're willing to fight for that, you know, and they're willing to finally, um, start do, doing something to create a change in the country. So to me, that has been one of the positive outcomes of this whole situation with the missing students, you know, to finally get people to that point where it, it, it leads them to take action instead of just, you know, taking, taking all of that abuse and mistreatment and all of that. They have finally found their voice. They have finally stood up and said that they've had enough. And we can see that attitude, you know, played out really well, even with the families of the missing students, where these families, you know, they're, they're peasants, you know, most of them are uneducated, very, very poor people, and yet they have found, you know, that strength to, to finally stand up, and they've been, you know, they had a meeting with the president of Mexico, and they made their demands and they said, we're not going to let you, you know, sweep this under the rug or ignore what's going on. You need to do something. And so they're holding their president accountable and they're holding, you know, all of their political leaders accountable, which is something that hasn't been done at all, you know, through the years because there's so much corruption. And, after, you know, when you have really bad governments year after year after year, 
people just kind of start to tune it out and become indifferent and you know not really um, even take notice anymore so this has been a, a good thing in that people have really gone from having that apathy and, and indifference to really finally deciding to take charge of what's going on in in their country so um, you know I've been I I'm gonna go to Mexico next month in December I have been planning this uh, event uh, for a while now and and I try to go to Mexico at least once a year I was just there in June and and then I, I booked my flight to go back in December for the Christmas season because what I'm doing this Christmas season is I'm doing a toy drive and I'm bringing uh, you know hundreds of toys to the people um, to all the the children living in my in my um, community in Iwala and I'm going to be giving out Christmas toys on, uh, on Christmas Eve and having a party for them and making, you know, making the Christmas season really special for these kids. So that was my plan. That's why I was coming to Iwala. But now after, you know, what's been happening there, I'm actually going to make a trip out to the university that the students are from and to find out how we can help. You know, what can we do? How can we help these students? Well, how can we help the families? So I'm really hoping to establish some kind of relationship with, with this university and try to really you know, find a way to, to help. Because that's something that we can all do. You know, Whenever we see um, some injustice going on, we cannot just allow it. You know, we can't allow it to happen. We all have the power to make a difference. Um, and no matter you know how small or how big your participation is, it's gonna make a huge difference. So for me, like I don't, I don't want to just be sitting around reading the newspaper and from afar and just looking at what's going on, but not really doing something. I want to do something. So my way of doing something is by actually you know going there and finding out how how I can help and and what can I do to. Um, you know, to assist the students and the, and the families of, of the missing students as well. And there, our time is up, but um, do want to note that you, you can bring your personal questions to Rain. I know she's happy to stay in conversation, and I will be taking her to the Center for Intercultural um, Education to see the display of the students. Uh, before we thank Raina, quick housekeeping. Becky, are Convo clickers on both sides? Okay, if you don't need your card scan, it will really help if you go out the back door. Otherwise, there'll be people to take your cards. Join me in thanking Raina Grande.